Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sex, child abuse, and suicide that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Words have power. String the right ones together and you can inspire movements or incite violence. Emma Goldman had a way with words and an undying belief in her right to use them. For nearly two decades, she was a leading member of the anarchist movement and railed against the status quo. Her words mattered. When she spoke, people didn't just listen, they did something much to the dismay of the American authorities, who preferred Emma not say anything at all. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we'll meet Emma Goldman, an anarchist who lived at the turn of the 20th century. Also known as Red Emma, she was a leading voice in the radical movement. We'll follow her as she joins the cause at 18, quickly finds her voice, and draws the ire of those in power. Next week, we'll follow Emma's fight against American involvement in World War I and the devastating consequences she faced as a result. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Though Emma Goldman eventually made a name for herself in the United States, her life started in the small Russian city of Kovno. On June 27, 1869, Tao Goldman gave birth to a daughter, the first child of her second marriage. She and her new husband, Abraham, named her Emma. But what should have been a happy occasion was marred by Abraham's disappointment. He had wanted a boy. Abraham was a hard man to please, and his circumstances did nothing to improve his opinion of his children. To start with, the Goldmans lived in an area of intense anti-Semitism. They faced continuous discrimination because of their Jewish faith, which forced them to move often, always searching for a better life, but never finding one. As they settled in each new place, Abraham started different businesses using the inheritance Taub brought from her first marriage. But nothing he tried panned out. He only lost more and more money. 
Between his business failures and the discrimination he faced, Abraham was always angry, and he took it out on his family. Whenever his children disobeyed him, Abraham beat them, Emma most of all. In his eyes, she was uncontrollable, and in a sense, she was. She was spirited and stubborn, most unbecoming of a young woman in the 1800s. It was clear early on she wanted to do things her own way, no matter what her father said or did to her. She was aware of the discrimination her family faced, but by the time she was 12, she could see something her father couldn't, that at its root lay an invisible power structure. This hierarchy rewarded those at the top at the expense of those at the bottom. Emma wanted to one day topple this power structure. That way she would leave her mark on the world and make it a better place. Unfortunately, she couldn't convince her father to see things from her point of view, and he wasn't the only one who made life difficult for the young woman. In 1881, 12-year-old Emma planned on entering secondary school. To enroll, she needed to pass an exam and receive an exemplary character reference. Emma was incredibly bright and studious, so the exam was no problem, but the reference proved disastrous. According to Emma's biographer, Vivian Gornick, her religion teacher declared her a terrible child who would grow into a worse woman. And with that, Emma's dreams of higher education were shattered. Her father could have appealed the school's decision or looked for another establishment, but Abraham was happy for Emma to stop her education. He wanted her to start working instead. Emma felt true despair. She had known that this was a possibility, but she'd thought things might be different for her. Unlike her siblings, she loved school and she excelled at it. But none of that mattered to her father. He wanted her to earn money, and without any bargaining power, Emma had no choice but to do his bidding. It's understandable then that from that point forward, she resented him. Before we continue with Emma's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to psychologist Judith Smetana, adolescents concede authority to their parents as long as it's contextually appropriate and parents do not demand unfair or immoral behavior. But if either of those conditions are not met, problems arise. Things only become worse as kids get older. When a teenager is old enough to make their own decisions, a parent stepping in to control their personal autonomy can be detrimental to healthy adjustment. If it feels psychologically intrusive and coercive, teenagers are bound to rebel. This can lead to a complete rupture of the parent-child dynamic. And that's exactly how Emma felt when she was forced to trade school for work in a glove factory. But as a young girl, she didn't have any other options. And she wouldn't, as long as she remained in Russia. Emma spent the next three years toiling in the factory. By the time she was 15, she wanted out. And she knew exactly where to go. Her older half-sister, Helena, was set to emigrate to the United States. And Emma desperately wanted to go with her. But as always, Emma's father had other plans for her. He had plans to arrange a marriage. 
Unsurprisingly, Emma refused. She begged her father to let her go back to school instead or go with Helena to America, but Abraham wouldn't listen. So in a desperate attempt to change his mind, Emma threatened suicide. Abraham scoffed at her dramatics, believing that she didn't mean it. Still, he eventually relented. It wasn't worth the fight for him. Ultimately, he just wanted her out of his house. He said she could go to America with Helena, but he wouldn't offer her support once she arrived. Once they left, the sisters would be on their own. It was music to 16-year-old Emma's ears, and she set off for America with Helena, dreaming of a better future. In December 1885, Emma and Helena stood on the bow of their ship and watched as the Statue of Liberty appeared through the mist. The two of them couldn't help but feel a surge of emotions. Finally, they had escaped their abusive upbringing and were embarking on a new adventure, filled with hope, freedom, and opportunity. But soon after docking, Emma and Helena realized they were nursing a fantasy. They had envisioned America as a place where they could rise above their current station, marry for love, and live life free of discrimination. But neither girl had any money, formal education, or fluency with English. So before long, they found themselves doing exactly the thing they'd come to America to avoid, working in a factory. But in the United States, the factories were even worse than in Russia. They were sweatshops, with grueling hours and abysmal conditions. At the end of each week, factory owners would deduct the cost of materials, electricity, and anything else the workers used to do their job from their weekly paycheck. So what might have been a $4 a week position actually paid much less. Living in Rochester, New York, Emma was miserable and disillusioned. There was no utopia. She likely realized then that if she wanted to live in one, she'd have to make it for herself. But before she could get started, romance intervened. Emma met a fellow employee named Jacob Kirshner. They bonded first over a shared hatred for their employer, then as things became romantic, over their love of books. After a few months of courtship, Kirshner proposed to 17-year-old Emma, and she quickly agreed. After all, she was horribly lonely in the States, and he was someone who she could talk to. The only other person in her life was her sister, Helena, but she didn't share Emma's interest in reading or higher education. Emma felt that Kirshner met her intellectual standard, and she could imagine herself being happy with him. That is, until the wedding night. That was when Emma learned that Kirshner was impotent. She also discovered he was living with depression. He hadn't revealed either condition to her during their brief courtship, only telling her the truth once they were legally bound to one another. Far from having sympathy for the man she'd married, Emma felt hoodwinked. She wanted a divorce immediately. Within a few months, she got her wish, and the 18-year-old was once again a free woman. Her opinion of marriage never recovered. She would forever associate the institution with her ex-husband's deception. As a result, Emma swore off marriage entirely. 
She told herself that if she ever loved another man, she would give herself to him without being bound by the rabbi or the law, and when that love dies, she would leave without permission. With this newfound attitude, Emma began reading widely in an attempt to find others who shared her views on love and marriage. Soon, she found them. They were called anarchists. In the late 1800s, anarchism was a quickly growing political movement. Its supporters were skeptical of all authority and power structures and believed that people should be able to govern themselves. It was especially popular among labor unions. But the movement's opponents argued that without government regulation, the world would devolve into chaos. Anarchists had a much more optimistic view of human nature. They believed that if all the capitalist structures were stripped away, people would be driven by cooperation, not competition, and thus society would become a utopia. There'd be no employers, only workers cooperating to get jobs done. There'd be no marriage, just people free to love whoever they desired for as long as they chose. And instead of only the rich being educated, everyone would be free to continue learning throughout their lives. It was exactly the type of world that appealed to Emma Goldman. And the more she read about this philosophy, the more enthralled she became. She recognized in these writings all the things she'd thought and felt over the years, but hadn't had words to describe. There was a common theme of dismantling the system, but also a need for more education and sexual liberation, two things Emma had been denied as a young woman. Soon she began attending anarchist meetings in Rochester. There she met like-minded people who helped expand her understanding. But one event would solidify her commitment to the cause more than any meeting ever could. On May 4, 1886, a group of anarchist demonstrators gathered in Haymarket Square in Chicago. They were there to support striking workers and protest police violence. The day was peaceful until the very end when the police arrived. Sensing potential danger, the crowd began to disperse, but before many people could leave the protest, a pipe bomb was thrown at the police from within the crowd. It exploded. Police began firing as protesters scrambled to get away. Bullets went flying, hitting demonstrators and officers alike. It was utter chaos. And in the end, seven officers and an unknown number of demonstrators were killed. The event became known as the Haymarket Massacre. The details were splashed across every front page in the country. Police and most of the press blamed the deaths on the anarchist leaders who organized the protest. They held them responsible for throwing the bomb and the bloodshed that followed. Over the next year, eight Chicago anarchist leaders were arrested, charged, and tried for the bomb attack. Despite a complete lack of evidence that any of them even knew of a plan to throw the bomb, a jury found all eight guilty. One was given 15 years, two others life imprisonment, five were sentenced to death. Still living in Rochester, Emma read about each new development in the papers, hopeful that the death sentences would be commuted at the last minute. The anarchists were innocent, surely everyone could see that. But on November 10, 1887, one of the condemned died by suicide. 
the remaining four were executed the following morning, all because they'd been peacefully protesting poor working conditions. When Emma read the news, she was beside herself, and she was moved to take action. It wasn't enough to read literature and attend meetings. She had to act, and she knew that she couldn't do that in Rochester. To truly join the cause, she needed to make her way to the center of everything, New York City. Up next, Emma becomes a leading force in the radical movement. Listeners, have you heard the eerie new podcast, Superstitions? Every Wednesday, explore the varying beliefs people around the world fear and follow in this mystifying series from Parcast. You do not want to miss it. Each week, step inside stories that illustrate the horror, weirdness, and truth behind humanity's strangest codes of conduct. Why do black cats represent witchcraft? What's the point of carrying a rabbit's foot around with you? And how come certain films seem cursed and others don't? Each new episode of Superstitions presents a story that unlocks the mysteries of unorthodox traditions and surreal phenomena. They may seem cryptic or illogical or completely insane, but then again, do they? Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Superstitions, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Now back to the story. After her failed marriage, 18-year-old Emma Goldman fell in with the anarchist movement, a new form of radical political thought. In the aftermath of the Haymarket Massacre, Emma knew she had to do more than just debate her new political beliefs with friends. She had to throw herself into the movement, so she decided to move to where it was based, New York City. When she arrived in August 1889, 20-year-old Emma had no real plan. All she had was the address of another anarchist who'd offered his hospitality should she ever be in the city. Luckily, when she arrived on his doorstep, he welcomed her with open arms. Before she could even get settled, he took her to the local cafe where all the anarchists hung out. There, she met the person who would become one of her closest friends and allies, 19-year-old Alexander Berkman. Not only was he also a Jewish immigrant from the Russian Empire, but he worked for Freiheit, Emma's favorite anarchist newspaper. They hit it off immediately. Emma was in awe of him, along with the rest of the people she met. Finally, she was right in the middle of things. That night, Berkman brought Emma along to a lecture. The speaker was Berkman's boss, Johann Most. Most was in his early 40s and was the editor-in-chief of Freiheit. If Emma thought meeting Berkman and his friends was impressive, Most was on another level entirely. 
To her, he was basically a celebrity. As she listened to him speak, she was enraptured. He was a powerful speaker who used fiery rhetoric to get his point across. Emma found herself nodding along with every word. By the time most stepped off the stage, Emma felt even more devoted to the cause. The next day, Berkman brought Emma to the newspaper offices to meet most. Emma couldn't believe her luck. She'd only been in New York City for two days, and she was already meeting one of the most important figures of the movement. Emma gushed over most, asking him questions and listening to his stories. He indulged her, but it was only when he asked some questions of his own that most really became interested. As Emma told him about her childhood in Russia, he leaned in. He saw that she had a gift for telling stories. As most listened, he felt like he was there in Russia with her, and he realized that this was a talent he could use for the cause. He suggested that Emma join the anarchist lecture circuit and speak about the movement. Emma was a little shocked at the suggestion and flattered. She wasn't sure she had a talent for public speaking, but if most thought she could do it, then she was determined to try. After all, she wanted to make a difference. Less than a month later, 20-year-old Emma began her tour. The first speech was in her old home city, Rochester, and was written for her by most. It was about the push for an eight-hour workday, which was the central issue of the working class movement at the time. But when she stepped up to the lectern, the words on the page felt all wrong to her. She was a gifted storyteller, but only when what she was saying came from within. She had a sudden epiphany that someone else's words wouldn't be enough for her. So she pushed the pages aside and improvised. She spoke of her own experience as a factory worker and how the only way to fix things was to bring down the system completely. As she spoke, she could feel the audience hanging on her every word. And when she finished, the crowd applauded. But then from the back of the room, a man shouted, inspiring speech, but what about the eight hour day? Emma felt a pit in her stomach. She realized she'd failed. Despite the power of her delivery, she hadn't given the audience what they'd come to hear, an impassioned plea for a shortened workday. That was what they needed first and foremost, more so than large-scale revolution. If she overlooked that, she overlooked them. It was a major turning point for Emma. So when she returned to New York City, she harbored doubts about Most's philosophy. He was a great anarchist leader, but his big picture ideas sometimes missed the mark with audiences. They needed concrete solutions to their problems, not vague overarching concepts. Needless to say, Johann Most didn't take kindly to criticism. He declared that if Emma was not with him, she was against him. She tried to explain that they were still on the same team. She was only suggesting some minor tweaks, but most would hear none of it. After that, the two parted ways. Not that Emma really needed him anyway. By now, she was comfortable in front of an audience and happy to continue speaking on the circuit. She had found her voice and she was going to use it. 
With most out of the picture, Emma began to spend more and more time with Berkman. At some point, their relationship turned sexual, but Emma made it clear, and Berkman agreed, that the anarchist movement came first. Their lives were devoted to the cause. Emma was determined to prove that she practiced what she preached, and a few months later, she got the perfect opportunity. In June of 1892, workers at the Carnegie Steel Mill in Homestead, Pennsylvania, declared a strike for better wages. The plant's manager, Henry Clay Frick, was notoriously anti-union, so as the protest continued, he refused to negotiate. Then Frick made a stand of his own. First, he locked the strikers out of the mill and erected a barbed wire fence around the property. Then, when they refused to back down, he closed the plant and fired them all, leaving them without pay or benefits. But the fight wasn't over. On July 6th, Frick decided to reopen the factory with strike breakers. To protect them, he hired nearly 300 private security guards. But when the guards arrived at the plant that morning, a firefight broke out between them and the unionists. It's unclear which side fired first, but for nearly 12 hours, the two sides shot at each other. Ultimately, seven guards and nine strikers died. Back in New York, 23-year-old Emma and 22-year-old Berkman followed the story. To them, it seemed like the American workers were finally waking up to the fact that change was needed. Emma and Berkman wanted to show their support and retaliate for the violence brought against the peaceful strikers. So the two of them hatched a plan to assassinate Henry Frick. The thinking here was that this would inspire workers to rise up against the system, but whether either of them fully grasped the seriousness of what they were about to do or were simply blinded by their radical ideals is unclear. According to psychologist Christophe Dant, individuals become more radicalized when they spend more time thinking about an issue, have more information available, or are exposed to group members. Emma and Berkman were ideal candidates for radicalization because they were in their own little bubble, enabling each other in an endless feedback loop. Research shows that once an individual is radicalized, their brains actually process information more intensely. So once Emma and Berkman got the idea in their head to kill Frick, they didn't stew for long. They needed to act on it. Perhaps that's why they went through with their plan despite the fact that it was hastily thrown together at best. Initially, Emma and Berkman planned to travel to Pittsburgh with a bomb, but they hit several roadblocks. Namely, Berkman couldn't figure out how to make the explosive. Plus, they didn't have enough money for both of them to make the trip. Eventually, they decided that Berkman would go to Homestead alone, armed with a gun. Emma would stay behind. That way, she could explain his actions to the world so that no one would misconstrue what happened. On the agreed-upon day, July 23, 1892, Emma paced in her New York apartment, waiting for news. As Berkman arrived at Frick's Pittsburgh office, he managed to get into the building and then into Frick's personal office without anyone stopping him. But Frick wasn't alone. A co-worker was there with him. 
Berkman knew it was now or never, and so, despite the witness, he raised his gun. He fired three times before Frick's associate tackled him to the ground. None of the shots were fatal. Two bullets only grazed Frick's neck, but Berkman was arrested and tried for attempted murder. Authorities tried to implicate Emma in the attempt on Frick's life, but they couldn't find any concrete evidence she'd been involved. Berkman, on the other hand, was found guilty and sentenced to 22 years in prison, an unusually long sentence for the crime. And just like that, Emma's friend, colleague, and lover was gone. After spending time coming to terms with the loss, Emma realized she was free to form another relationship. After all, that was one of the perks of personal liberation, being bound to a cause, but not to one individual. So Emma began a relationship with Ed Brady, an Austrian anarchist who was recently released from prison, and their partnership was something of a revelation for her. Emma enjoyed the men she'd been with before, but she'd never truly enjoyed sex. Now with Ed, it was as if she'd entered another world. The experience opened her eyes to the importance of sexual pleasure. As far as she was concerned, it was a basic human right, alongside the freedom to love whomever someone wanted for as long as they wanted. But as much as she believed in sexual liberation, Emma was still concerned with all other aspects of anarchism. In August 1893, as the United States grappled with a crippling economic depression, 24-year-old Emma stepped up onto an overturned packing box in the middle of Union Square in New York City. A crowd of some 3,000 unemployed men and women surrounded her. All of them wanted relief, help from the government. From atop her box, Emma urged them to take action instead of depending on the government. She told them, demand work. If they do not give you work, demand bread. If they deny you both, take bread. It is your sacred right. Her words inspired them and sent a chill down the spines of the authorities. Her audience didn't riot that day, but they got close to it. The press picked up on the threat. Newspapers dubbed her Red Emma and warned that she would eventually rile up a mob to tear down New York. But even though they denounced her, they printed her entire speech all the same. The following week, the police arrested Emma and charged her with inciting to riot. In court, she tried to use the First Amendment as a defense, but the jury wasn't convinced. They sentenced her to a year in prison. Though she was likely nervous, part of Emma welcomed the sentence. She had sworn to devote her life to the anarchist cause, and going to prison was a small price to pay. She wasn't even close to finished. Up next, Emma takes her place as a celebrated leader of the radical movement. Now, back to the story. After hatching a failed assassination plot, 23-year-old Emma Goldman watched her comrade, 22-year-old Alexander Berkman, go to prison. Just over a year later, in 1893, Emma went to prison herself on charges of inciting a riot. 
During her time in prison, Emma worked as a nurse's aide. She found that for the first time, she felt the same level of purpose in a day job as she did as an anarchist. But she didn't forget the cause so close to her heart. Her time in jail did nothing to lessen her spirit or diminish her following. In fact, it did the opposite. When she was released in 1894, 25-year-old Emma was greeted not just by the press, but by fans who were ecstatic to see her back on the streets. She was now a bona fide celebrity. In front of the prison gates, reporters asked Emma what she planned on doing next. And even though she was still on prison grounds, she told them in no uncertain terms that she would remain a voice for the anarchist movement. There was absolutely nothing that would stop Emma Goldman from speaking her mind. After her release, Emma moved in with her lover, Ed. They had managed to stay together throughout her prison sentence, but almost immediately, things took a downturn. Ed told Emma that he didn't want the two of them to live like lovers and colleagues, with the cause coming first. He wanted something more traditional, a wife and children. Emma said no, that wasn't her and it never would be. Not that this should have come as a surprise to Ed. Emma had made it clear from the start that, like most anarchists, she was against the institution of marriage. Despite this, Emma didn't leave Ed, at least not right away. Instead, she focused on her new job as a nurse. But even though she enjoyed her role, she felt a pull toward the stage. She loved being in front of people, speaking her truth. And she realized she hated the idea of staying in one place with one person for the rest of her life. Emma had no problem caring for large groups of people. Her empathy for the immigrant working class ran deep, and she truly wanted to make a better world for everyone. But she had a problem forming and keeping intimate relationships with those close to her. Psychologist Jeffrey Simpson says this is typical of avoidant people who struggle with closeness and emotional intimacy in relationships. These types of people like to maintain independence, control, and autonomy in their relationships. Coincidentally, these are also principles that anarchists believe in. Avoidant people aren't always that way. In fact, they generally only become withdrawn when someone asks too much of them. In Emma's case, she only became distant when Ed wanted her to settle down and be a wife. She didn't leave him immediately, but she grew apart from him, both emotionally and physically. Eventually, it was clear that the two of them weren't meant to be. Now, without a relationship tying her down for the first time in years, Emma dove headfirst into her activism. She went back to the lecture circuit, this time with a new topic of interest to focus on. Since leaving prison, Emma had spent her days working as a nurse and midwife. She mostly helped poor immigrant workers, young women who reminded Emma of herself when she first arrived in America. Through this work, Emma became convinced that one thing was essential to women's sexual and economic freedom, birth control. 
It's hardly surprising that around the turn of the 20th century, contraception was a controversial subject. But Emma felt strongly that in order to be truly free, women needed a firm hand in their own reproductive rights. And as one of only a few well-known female anarchists, she felt duty-bound to inform people about the importance of this subject. Lectures helped, but she needed to reach more people. This topic was just too important. So in March 1906, she founded Mother Earth, her own anarchist magazine. Its stated mission was to spread the truth about everything from freedom of speech to prison reform to birth control. Emma believed that ignorance was the greatest sin and hoped to combat it with education. She didn't have to do it alone either. Soon after its launch, Alexander Berkman was released from prison. Emma welcomed him home with open arms, ecstatic to have her closest comrade back at her side. She asked him to be her editor-in-chief, and he gladly accepted. For two years, the magazine was the center of Emma's life. Through its publication, she was able to reach more people than any one lecture ever could. Still, she continued giving speeches. In March 1908, 38-year-old Emma arrived in Chicago to give a lecture, only to find that the hall she'd booked was no longer available. Her frantic search for a replacement venue led her to 29-year-old Ben Reitman. He was a promoter and organizer and not only offered Emma his own hall, he offered to promote her event as well. Emma couldn't believe her luck. She agreed, happy to have the help, and she couldn't help but notice that Reitman was easy on the eyes. Sparks flew. It was clear he was as attracted to her as she was to him. Never one for patient consideration, Emma acted on the chemistry. She and Ben slept together that same night, and in some ways it was as much a political act as a personal one, at least for an anarchist. As Emma's biographer Vivian Gornick puts it, fulfilling her sexual desires was to declare a bold, risk-taking commitment to the new consciousness. As far as Emma was concerned, that was as good enough a reason as any to dive into an affair. When she left Chicago to continue her tour, Reitman joined her on the road. He became her promoter and manager, as well as her lover. Emma was in heaven. Others close to her disliked Reitman and warned her against him, but she wouldn't listen. She was addicted to the man. And quite frankly, he was very good at what he did. With him as her manager, Emma's success grew tenfold. Soon, she was lecturing to 2,000 people a night in locations all around the country. In 1910 alone, Emma delivered 120 lectures in 37 cities across the United States. And while she covered a range of topics, Birth control was a favorite. She lectured frequently on the right of the child not to be born, and stated emphatically that the government had no place regulating women's bodies. Despite these beliefs, Emma didn't count herself as a feminist. She thought that feminists were too focused on women's rights when they should have been concerned with societies as a whole. 
Still, when it came to reproductive rights, Emma supported Margaret Sanger and other birth control activists, even though they sought legal reform and Emma wanted to abolish the law entirely, they both agreed that the issue was of extreme importance. For a year and a half, Emma pushed birth control literature to the masses and lectured on the topic, in violation of the Comstock Law, which made spreading information about birth control and other, quote, obscene materials illegal. Finally, the authorities caught up with her. On February 11, 1916, Emma was arrested in New York City as she was about to make another speech. Emma took her arrest in stride, welcoming it even. She saw it as a chance for her to make her views on contraception even more widely known. Now she would have a national stage. She knew every paper in town, maybe even the country, would cover her trial. If she wanted to make birth control a household subject, then a splashy arrest was the best publicity she could have asked for. And though it might have felt like a high point in her journey for change, Emma's story was just getting started. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two as World War I looms and Emma gets involved in the anti-conscription movement. For more information on Emma Goldman, amongst the many sources we used, we found Emma Goldman, Revolution as a Way of Life by Vivian Gornick, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Joel Callen, fact-checking by Anya Bayerly, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Bad omens, good fortune, pure luck? Take a closer look at what you believe in and follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Superstitions. New episodes air weekly, every Wednesday. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.